abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. Several months ago, Odette Distel, head of Israel Newtech, received an email. The following was written in it. The Waterline podcast used to keep me distracted from the crowds in the local Mumbai trains during peak rush hour. Israel has always fascinated me and my family, which is why my parents were more than happy when I told them that I wished to pursue a master's in environmental studies at your alma mater, Tel Aviv University. I decided to come here, continued the letter, to build ties with companies that could help resolve the massive environmental challenges India faces, whilst being one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. Besides being very happy to know that our podcast is being appreciated, it got me thinking. What makes a person, one individual, embark on a journey halfway around the world, invest in his studies with a thought not about himself, but rather focusing on building ties that could help resolve the massive environmental challenges India faces. I can barely bring myself to make a cup of coffee first thing in the morning without grunting, growling and muttering words of abuse at the kettle, let alone thinking about what's in it, how it got there, which technologies were employed to ensure its content is sufficient in amount, high in quality, and always readily available on demand. To be energized and carve your own path by the notion of we rather than me? To what lengths would a person go in order to take care of the greater good, keeping a keen eye on the environment we live in, and what prices might he or she has to pay for doing so. In the following two episodes, we will shine a light on just that. Our next episode will feature a person who had to flee his country for speaking up, and today, whilst in exile, is promoting awareness to water management issues in his home country. My guest today, though, is Anyold Kenny, the person who wrote the email I've mentioned earlier. We will hear the stories of two people who see the topics of water and environment sustainability as part of their mission in life, way, way, way beyond making sure they took care of a leaky pipe in their house or redecorating their back garden. Not as a result of an epiphany, but rather a result of a calculated approach. For all of us to have an abundance of safe water to consume tomorrow, they don't wait for others. They say, yes, I can. I'm Anirudh from India. I was born in Mumbai, brought up in Delhi. I did my mechanical engineering in Vellore Institute of Technology in Tamil Nadu. 
after which I was working with Accenture for about 16 months, uh, and then I joined my father's firm, and after which I'm here uh, doing my master's in environmental studies at the Tel Aviv University International at the Porter School, which I've been doing it for three months, and it's been a very, very enjoyable experience for me academically and otherwise as well. And you made your mother extremely proud because you are an engineer. <laughs> so in India, I've, uh, we have this very famous saying that uh, our parents tell us that you can be anything you want to be and you can live out your dreams as long as it's an engineer or a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a mechanical engineer. Yes. Why water? Ever since I could understand certain things, like maybe it comes to people at different ages. For me, it was... I remember in the fifth or the sixth grade, uh, we have this uh, festival of lights called Diwali. And it's a, very, it's a very nice festival. And the essence of it is that it's the festival of lights. But over a period of time and with, as society has changed, it's big changed from the festival of lights to bursting crackers in the streets and the cities polluted the next day. And even when I was in the sixth grade, I thought that, You know, this is not right. And I don't know if it comes from my parents or how it was. But I was slightly more aware than my peers at that time. So caring for the environment came to me quite early, if I can say so. And as I became older and I started to see how the world works, I wanted to try and make a little bit of a difference for myself and for my community as well. And to me, water is like, and as Odette sa- has said that, you know, a country can survive without an aerospace industry, but we can't survive without water. That's a fact. So you, as you said, you worked in Mumbai, which is yeah. a small city of uh, nearly 24 million people. Very small, yes. <laughs> and the potable water for domestic use is roughly 3.5 million cubic meters water. A day mm. not an easy task uh, absolutely it's not an easy task and if you see the way the system is designed it's a very Victorian era system the infrastructure is very old so given the infrastructure which we have I think the government is doing a reasonably good job in providing the basic amenities but the demand is much more than the supply. That's, that's the fact. And if you see the figures by Niti Aayog, which is our government think tank, by 2030, our demand is going to be twice of what we're supplying, which is going to lead to about 6% to 6.5% loss in GDP. So we need to be aware of this problem. And I think this is the main issue which India and in the entire world is facing, that we see water coming out of our taps and We don't understand that this is a problem which had to be solved yesterday. And we think that, okay, it's coming on in the tap, so it's fine. We can keep on going. We had this problem of CFCs, of the ozone hole. I mean, it's a very big problem, ozone hole, but a perfect term because people could actually visualize that, okay, it's a hole and we need to fix it. And if you see the statistics from the 1970s onwards that The major sources of the CFCs were aerosols, which were in hairsprays and refrigerators. And scientists discovered an alternate for CFC. Scientists have discovered various ways which we can use water efficiently. So 
if you see the figures, the the sales of hairsprays, they dropped drastically once people had that image in their mind. Okay, there there's a hole, it's going to destroy us. So people do care, but I think it's up to policymakers, to the government, to make them understand in a way that they know that how immediate the problem is. Because you can see it. So air pollution, like, ah, people are talking about it right now, but nobody talks about water because it's under the ground and it's coming in your tap, so it's fine. So let's talk about pollution because you're here to do your studies in environmental studies. And in in a conversation we had before this recording, you said, I'm happy that I'm doing this course because I didn't know how much I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. So what is it you were jokingly saying, you know, I came as an engineer and this is all I knew, which is a lot to know. What did you discover that in this, you know, a brief time of a semester, you said, wait a second, we're doing something wrong? It's like the more you know, the less you know. So uh, for me, it was that I, I'm a mechanical engineer. I think in a very straight line kind of a way. So I was always uh, blaming people are that you know the technology is available it's just that people are wrong we don't know how to live and we're not a very good uh, civilization but no that's not true most of these issues they're very complicated and we try to oversimplify them if you take the case of let's say irrigation in India we are irrigating our fields by what our great-grandfathers or maybe a generation before that used to do which is just flood the fields. And in fact, Indian farmers, uh, we are using about three to five times the water that American or Chinese or Israeli farmers are using. You came from one of the largest cities in the world. World. And the population in Israel is something that the railway system in Mumbai takes Um, care of on a daily basis. Yeah. Roughly eight million people. Yeah. Don't you find the scale here too small? So the district where I was living in Mumbai, it's just next to Mumbai called Thane. That has more people than the entire country of Israel. And you're right, our train system carries more people than or equal to the number of people. But, you know, we should complement each other. We have some things which Israel doesn't have. And Israel has some things which we don't have. But, but how do you make a difference? For me, it is by opening an enterprise, hiring people while doing some good. Like I would want to be rewarded for my efforts for sure. But if I can do something which helps my fellow countrymen or a fellow human being, that would make me work much harder than I would, say, work b- billing a multimillionaire client. The spaces where I was interested in was water and agriculture. And it's a matter of fact that Israel is a world leader in both of them, which is why I came here because my education, it is a very big part of why I'm here and I'm loving my course. But to get the essence of the Israeli way to do things because we got independence a year apart and even though the scales are very different, If you look at the number of innovations and the technology, Israel is far ahead of almost all the countries in the world. For me personally, my end goal over here is that I would like to inculcate the culture of moving fast and failing fast and taking some technology which could help people and taking it to India and then 
customizing it. This is the main part of it so for the. So let's let's talk about customization. Yeah. What does that mean? Okay, drip. Ir- let's talk about drip irrigation. Drip irrigation is a wonderful innovation. We are grateful to Simcha Blast for it. Uh, but in India, of all the tube well owners, which means that they have a ready source of water to irrigate their fields, they're not dependent on the rain. Just 5% of them are using drip irrigation. We had Nati Barak from Netafim on this program. Yeah. And he said, you know, some of it is due to finance. It's not easy to finance, although he said, you know, working with local banks, once financed, they... They paid it back within six months. Exactly. Yes. Drip irrigation works. It saves water. It's energy efficient. All the aspects are there. But I feel that there is there needs to be much more coordination and cooperation on the ground. India is... Uh, it's a land of villages and... These villages can range from a few households to thousands of people. Now, it may not be financially proficient for Netafim or Jain Irrigation to have a distributor in each and every one of them. So it's a, it's, it's a game of business models right now that how do, you, how do you sell this equipment while making money? There's only so much that government can do. And as you said, Nati Barak said that they had a joint tie-up with, with the Karnataka government and the farmers did pay off their state-wise subsidies are there and a large portion of it is covered by the subsidies. But still, there needs to be a business model which has to focus on India. So I think... Can you talk about N India? Isn't it India's? And yes, absolutely. Which is why I said there needs to be more cooperation and coordination on the ground. Each and every state should have a different distributor. Our bureaucracy and the way the policies are made... Um, unfortunately, and I think it's most parts of the world, when you have so many people and so many different types of people, it is built for gridlock. And in India, to do business with somebody, there needs to be so many things, but you need to build a relationship with them first. That is the main thing. Say somebody's talking to me personally, and they come to me with a great technology. But I will come up to them and tell them that, but hey, I'm providing you such a big market, I'm providing you service, and I'm providing you distribution. So I don't know why you guys are asking money from me. Like, I should be asking money from you guys as a royalty. So, you know, this gap, I feel this. There is enough blame to go around on both sides. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's healthy or beneficial for anybody. Why not have cooperation between small entrepreneurs who can go to the villages in India and then, then, then they can deploy the solutions. Why not we do that rather than just this? I mean, both sides are important, but I think person-to-person cooperation, there's no alternative for that. And I don't see any reason that if we can have engagement between people, not delegations of government affairs, between people, we can, we can do something good and something quick. Right after the break, more about India and its water-related challenges. Wish to learn more about Israeli technologies and the Israeli water sector? The people of Israel Newtech will be glad to answer your questions. 
log on to israelnewtech.com. And don't forget to follow Waterline on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at IdanC79. And now, back to the episode. India, the largest democracy in the world, is, as a matter of fact, India's. 1.3 billion human beings live in 29 states and 7 union territories. Precipitation and climate-wise, India has it all. From arid areas in the west to humid subtropical areas in the east. Snow is abundant as well in India. More than 16% of the country is on the Himalaya mountain range that runs through 10 states. The mountain range forms the country's northern border. From Jammu and Kashmir in the northwest all the way to Mizoram in the southeastern parts of the ridge. And it is this ridge that shapes not only the scenic views of northern India, but rather the entire subcontinent. It is a key player in the creation of the monsoon rains. I will not go into the intricacies of the meteorological conditions that create this phenomenon, I will try to stick to the basics of it. During springtime in India, the sun hits hard and the land's temperature rises and can get to an average of 38 degrees centigrade and thus the air above it expands and creates a high pressure. Meanwhile, water in the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean is much cooler. A difference of more than 20 degrees centigrade at times and a low pressure is created. Nature has this weird behavior, a constant strive towards equilibrium. Add to this the fact that there are no natural vacuum conditions on planet Earth And the air is pulled, if you will, from the low-pressure area to the high-pressure area. When the cold air mixes with the hot air and hits the mountain range, it condenses, clouds form, and rain ensues. What I've just described happens over an enormous landmass. For example, the distance between Kochi in the state of Kerala on the shore of the Arabian Sea in the south of India, to Dharamsala in the state of Himchal Pradesh, on the slopes of the Himalayan range in the north of India, is roughly 3,200 kilometers. You can imagine the immensity of energy at play here. This is why, when the monsoon rains hit, they have the ability to hit hard. Most of India is still agrarian, and to feed 1.3 billion people is not a small feat. Indians rely on the monsoon rains to flood their fields, to replenish their water sources, and to alleviate the burden of the heat. The month of June is a joyous month in India. 
a good monsoon will secure the livelihood of many, ensure that famine is avoided, and enable the smooth running of the Indian economy. It is part of the Indian life cycle and is part of the nation's culture. Art, literature, music, plays, poetry, all bear reflections of the rains of the monsoon. India's national poet and Nobel literature laureate Rabindranath Tagore wrote, My heart dances. The clouds rumble from sky to sky, the shower sweeps horizons. The doves shiver in silence in their nests, the frogs croak in the flooded fields, and the clouds rumble. Ah, my heart dances like a peacock. The rain patters on the new leaves of summer. The tremor of the cricket's chirp troubles the shade of the tree. The river overflows its bank, washing the village meadows. My heart dances. What happens when there's a bad monsoon? When the rain is either too early or too late? Or when the rain hits too hard and the water's blessing becomes a bane? As an avid listener of this podcast, I am sure you remember the basic facts when it comes to water and water sector management. It is not just the amount of water that counts. It is also a matter of time. A small amount over a long period of time is easier to control and much better for water to be managed than large amounts of water over a short period of time. Lately, when the monsoon rain is hit all throughout the country, it comes in heavier spells during shorter times. That is exactly how you spell disaster. July 26, 2005. At 1400 hours, the sky roared and it started raining heavily in the state of Maharashtra. Its capital, Mumbai, saw its highest amount of rain in three decades. The monsoon rains poured over the metro area of Mumbai and in 24 hours, 944 millimeters of rain hit the city and its suburbs more than two-thirds of this amount in a 12-hour period. That's nearly a meter of water, a bit more than 37 inches or three feet, more than July's entire average monthly amount in a single day. One thousand and ninety-four people were killed. Mumbai is a wet city. July's average is 835 millimeters. It is not easy to manage the water in the city, with an annual amount of nearly 2,400 millimeters of rain, 
This amount is scattered, or rather dumped, during only four months, between early June and late September. In July of 2005, the monsoon rains were met by a city that was unprepared, better yet, unplanned, to withstand their wrath. The way in which the city was planned, engineered, and built seemed to ignore water and its natural flow, not allowing nature to coexist with humans. And on a larger, national scale, the global climate change is creating tougher monsoons with growing erratic behavior. Time frames are shifting with earlier rains and stronger downpours, which in turn disrupt crop yields and thus affect the entire economy. In the wake of the 2005 disaster in Mumbai, a committee that examined the day's events came to a conclusion that restoring wetlands, as well as repairing a century-old water system, will enable the city to better withstand future freak weather incidents. In the monsoon of 2019, disaster hit again. This time around, 32 people were killed in Mumbai after the city saw 375 millimeters of rain in a 24-hour period. Some of the 2005 aftermath resolutions were implemented, and yet a construction boom in the city in the past 15 years almost but eradicated a mangrove forest that was a healthy mixture of a wetland and a natural pathway for water flows. That means that the city's capability to withstand future extraordinary downpours is now in fact narrowed. In this match of humankind versus water, the water is bound to win at a heavy cost to humankind. When you look at the monsoon and try to consider climate change, the scale is so large, some might dismiss the phenomenon altogether. There is, after all, a natural occurring oscillation that governs the monsoon cycles between good and bad monsoons, the El Niño climate cycle. Monsoons are different year on year. However, even this cycle is going off the rails far more often. Some people seem to find it hard to believe that air pollution, for instance, might be a cause, or at least a contributor, to shifts in rain patterns too big of a phenomenon to comprehend fully. And while Mumbai, in the west of the country, might find itself drowning because of changes high up in the sky, in the eastern parts of the country, there is a different story altogether. Here, again, human beings attempt to coexist with nature, if there was any, failed. In this spot on Earth, troubles are most certainly man-made. And no one can say comprehension of this situation and its reciprocal nature is too hard to conceive. The following story is not just about Mother Nature. It is a story about another mother altogether. The Ganges River runs for a bit more than 2,500 kilometers, roughly 1,500 miles, from the Himalayan ridge of the state of Uttarakhand and runs eastwards to the Bay of Bengal. The Ganges and its tributaries form a watershed of a million square kilometers. It is the source of water for agriculture, the food industry, a route of commerce, a place for recreation and religious rituals, a natural waterway that is sacred and holy, Mata Ganga, 
Mother, Ganga, the embodiment of accepting all and forgiving all, Goddess. And its virtues are far from being just in the realm of the divine. It is also one of the most polluted rivers in the world. Raw sewage and human waste are washed into the river, as well as animal waste and harmful chemicals from agriculture and many industries, ranging from textile manufacturing to food manufacturing and slaughterhouses. All are situated along its route. Ceremonial cremation of human remains on the banks of the river are commonplace, and human ashes are scattered along the river as well, practices deeply rooted in the Hindu tradition. For the past four decades, many attempts were made to clean the river. Success, if there was any, was short-lived. The current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, promised in 2014 to clean the river. Mother Ganga has called me, he said. Unfortunately, the mammoth task of cleaning the river in five years, as he promised, was not realized. And yet, not for a moment did the river lose its status as a sacred place. Anirudh Kenny. It's wholly because of mythological reasons, but if you look at the Ganga of what it was, not what it is, it has certain bacteria which kill pathogens. It has a very high dissolved oxygen demand of about 12 to 14 milligrams per liter, which heals a lot of skin diseases. So which is why in the past, if you had a skin disease, your doctor or whoever used to tell you that, okay, you need to go to the Ganga and take a dip there because it has a lot of rocks and minerals. It's science. And I remember when I had gone to Haridwar, which is a very holy place in India, in UP, and I was in a boat, the boatman told me that he remembers a time where you could throw a coin into the river and you could see it. But today, it's not holy. It's an extremely polluted river. So naturally, the water of the Ganga is... It's naturally, med- it has... It is medicinal and it is, yeah, naturally it is. Not anymore, though. What happened was that uh, India started to grow at a rapid pace and things needed to be done and they weren't done with a long-term vision in mind. It was just like, okay, let's have these industries because... You need to create employment for people and there are various, again, forces at play here which are not in mine or, or anybody's control. It's much big, bigger than us. The Ganga watershed is huge. Yes. It's being fed, the Ganga itself is being fed by many, many streams and smaller rivers. And as we know, you know, industry needs water and it's easier to position it next to a water and source. You have it right there, so... I will again break it down into a place called Kanpur in UP. Uh, It has a lot of leather factories. And about 400 tanneries are on the banks of the River Ganga. And now the wastewater which they're producing, it contains dyes, acids, sulfides, and most importantly, it contains chromium sulfate, which is a known carcinogen. It's a cancer-causing substance. Now they are releasing this water straight back into the river, untreated, which is then being used to irrigate the fields. And this water seeps into the ground. This is a very vicious cycle. And there are very sad accounts of villagers who have 
lost their nails because they've been working in this water and they cannot afford high quality medical treatment. They just have to go on with their lives. And all these factories, they're supplying to international buyers who are very well aware of what is going on. But what they care about is cheap leather at a very good price, which they're providing. So when we're talking about the circular economy, the circle here is huge. Yes. It's a global circle. It's a global circle. And we can go on about this. One of the largest rice mills is situated in Asia, is situated in UP. Now, what they did was once you clean the rice, it's, it's a very big rice mill. They must have like millions of dollars of turnover. They didn't want to treat the water. What they did was they just dug a bore well and they dumped all this water, which would be a, a maybe thousands, hundreds of thousands of liters a day into the ground. What impact this had was that the surrounding villages, about 25 villages, their entire groundwater source, which is their major source of irrigation, of cooking, of drinking, of everything that got polluted. How come? You're talking about rice. You're washing something that you eat. The rice, which is being got from the field to what we're eating, the white one, undergoes a lot of processes. And the water got polluted in those 25 villages. And when they did the test, they were about five times higher than what was accepted. If you drink that water, which the people are doing right now as we're speaking, they're going to die. So is it a story about environment? Is it a story about regulation? Or is it a story about common sense? From our point of view, it's common sense. But for example, when we talk about the villager, he doesn't have a choice. When I was seeing this documentary and the interviewer was asking him that you know that you're feeding your, uh, you're giving your kid this water to drink, you know he's going to have some kind of a problem. He's like, yeah, I know that, but I, what, what can I do? Now, when you said regulation and policy, yes, absolutely. I think so there needs to be certain responsibility which has been taken and these people need to be need to be accountable because for me this is a crime you managed to plot the problems we talked about industry we talked about the ganga we talked about tanneries we talked about a lot of things where is change going to come from change you know it's not all bad And I think this is a very bad strategy which the media today uses. I would just like to share something with you. If you just Google water and India, the first result which you'll get is about a water expo which is going to happen in 2019. Uh, And then there's another website which is uh, relating to an exhibition. Like this is basically the search in an optimization or whatever, whatever Google does. But after that, Everything you see is about India water crisis. India is running out of groundwater in 2020. And it's just bad news. It's just like... But gl- it is the truth, isn't it? It is the truth. But, you know, there is evidence, like proper psychological evidence, that this gloom and doom philosophy, it doesn't work. It just makes people retreat and focus on something else because you don't want to think about all this when you're going to work because you'll be like, hey, what can I do about it? And which is right? So I think there needs to be a little bit of hope where, where we need to have a little bit of hope so that people can, you know, that they can start doing something. And I will share something with you again, which is being done in the electricity industry. 
that there was this experiment done in UCLA, if I'm not mistaken, where they were mapping out the electricity usage of each and every apartment. And depending on your usage, you were given stars. So what happened was that people started competing with each other that, hey, I want a gold star. And it reduced the consumption by a lot. Now, some very smart people and like they're called O Power. They're work working in about a, with about a hundred utilities. What they do is they give out personalized electricity bills. What this does is that it tells you your usage when compared to your users. We need to bring out that competitive spirit among people, and all of us are competitive. Nobody wants to come last. Ask anybody on the street, do you want to come last? In a, nobody will tell you yes. So we need to use this competitive spirit in a right direction so that we go from apathy to like real-time action. So I, I would encourage any media house, don't be so negative. I know that that gets eyeballs hooked onto you, but it's not working for the good of humanity. So if I'll ask you now, what, what, should, uh, what should lead it? You know, your suggestion is a very, it's a good idea. But what should lead it? Awareness or technology? Mm, that's or very, should they go hand in hand? I think it's awareness, technology, and again, being very selfish here when I'm talking from India's perspective, it needs to be policy. So there needs to be a very nice balance between technology, awareness, and policy. And the last part of this puzzle is policy. Now... There are so many states in India. The center can enforce a particular policy, but it's up to those states, to individual states, to accept and enforce them. Most of the farm, farm landholders in India, they're very small and it's no longer profitable. Why not we aggregate these, the lands? Like, have entrepreneurs or some corporations come in and aggregate this land and achieve scale with greenhouses or with hydroponics through some technology. Let's face it, profitability is is the name of the game in this situation. If you can achieve scale, you can achieve profitability in this in this business. In India, in certain states, you're allowed to rent land from the farmers, but in certain states, you're not. And this information is just somewhere in the air. It's not very clear. So there needs to be a coordinated effort by the people. You know, all the stakeholders need to come together and forget about their egos because I don't want to, I don't want to go to in the gloom and doom, but time is running out. <laughs> you're, you're going against what you're, what you're uh, pontificating. Yeah. Exactly against what you're pontificating. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> but so I'm, maybe it's not that easy. Yeah, it is not. E it's not easy and it will take a lot of effort by people involved with people with different backgrounds and who don't see eye to eye. Within our states, we have 11 major water disputes among states. Among states? Yes. And this has caused, caused major unrest between Karnataka and Tamil Nadu. Which are in the south. In of the southern parts. When I was studying in Tamil Nadu, there was major unrest going on because of water. Because water in India, it's a state issue. So we're talking about Indias again and not N India. Yes, once again. And I'm not saying that it can't be done. We just passed the Goods and Services Tax Bill, which makes the entire region of Indias into one India. So like goods can flow from one state to another without being stopped at uh, 
particular checkpoints. They had so many stakeholders there. There was a lot of noise about who's wrong and who's right. And it was very publicized. But they did come to an agreement. And even after that, there were a lot of problems. But at least it got done. At least they took action. Let's at least try something rather than just sit and let things happen as they are. Waterline was brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media Production.